All right, well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff Kreisel. As he said, I, uh, I serve as the RUF campus minister at the Air Force Academy. I love my job. And you guys have the pleasure of knowing several of our students. Um, hello. That's, yeah. All right, so <clears throat> on December 22nd, 2008, I said bye to my family. I kissed and hugged my wife of just barely a year, goodbye, and I boarded a plane. Uh, to the Middle East for my first deployment. And after a two-day trip around the world, I arrived at my new home, and it was nestled in this beautiful, sandy landscape in northern Iraq in the city of Kirkuk. And it was on Christmas Eve of all days. And well, that night, my commander had decided that he was going to throw this base-wide holiday party, a Christmas party for everybody. And so we all came together into the dining facility, um, they gave us better than normal food. It was my first night, so I didn't know. I thought it was okay, but they were super excited about the food. Um, we sang Christmas carol, karaoke uh, songs, and then my commander came out, and he was dressed up as Santa Claus, and he was ho-ho-hoing and passing out gifts. Um, it was a great time. For my first night in Iraq, I couldn't complain. It was pretty great, right? But then a couple hours into the party, I heard for the first time the sound of the rocket attack sirens. And so we all jumped to the ground. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just following everyone else's lead. And we took cover under these flimsy, collapsible tables. And then I, for the first time, felt and I heard this resounding, like, boom. And the lights immediately went completely out, like, can't see your hand in front of your face kind of darkness, pitch black. You see, the rocket had struck our base power generator, which was only about 100 feet from the party. And a few minutes later, we're still under our collapsible flimsy tables, and the rocket attack sirens again begin to sound, and boom, and then another one, boom, and they seemed to be getting closer and closer and closer, and this happened for the next two hours. This was my first night on my first deployment. Um, this was the first time in my life that I truly felt afraid. This was the first time in my life that I felt alone and afraid. And as I had helplessly laid there under that table in these these explosions are going off outside of our party, I couldn't help but start asking questions like, why is this happening? Like, is this how my story ends? Like, I was 24 at the time. I was a second lieutenant. I'd been married for a year. I thought I had my whole life ahead of me, and I started to think, is this how my story ends? Why is this happening? God, where are you? Why have you forsaken us, me? Do you even care? In our passage this morning, in Psalm 22, David is clearly going through something similar, but instead of dealing with rockets, he's dealing with broadswords, which I think is worse. I've seen enough movies to know that you don't want to be in a war with broadswords, right? Psalm 22 packs a unique lament punch. You know, over one-third of the Psalter, they're lament psalms. But Psalm 22 is different. It seems to pack a unique punch. David's situation in Psalm 22, it seems especially dire. He seems particularly lonely in this psalm. He seems so helpless, so powerless, 
against what he's up against. And now keep in mind that David knew his Bible probably better than most of us in this room. He knew Deuteronomy 3, verse 16, when the Lord said, do not be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God is with you. He goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. David knew Joshua 1, 5. He had it memorized. It was probably written right on his heart. Just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. David knew this. But in Psalm 22, he's having a hard time believing God's promises are true. David found himself in the deep, dark valley, and enemies are surrounding him on every side. Just like me on my first night in Iraq, he was alone, and he's afraid. He starts asking, where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? Why would you let something like this happen? Do you even care? Psalm 22 invites us into David's loneliness, into David's fear. But it is in this deep, dark valley of David's loneliness and fear that God draws near and the gospel shines so bright a thousand years before Jesus comes to die for our sins. Now, since Psalm 22 is a pretty long passage, I'm not gonna invite you to stand, and we're gonna split it into three parts or three stanzas. Uh, we're gonna approach it almost as if it's a song. It is a song. It's the Israelite songbook. And so stanza number one, we're gonna look at David being alone in the valley. In stanza two, we're gonna see that David felt afraid in the valley. And then in stanza three, David's lament turns to praise in the valley. And so, if you will, turn with me to Psalm 22, and we are going to read verses 1 through 11 to start off. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by, by night, and I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But not me. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. For you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Do you feel the desperation in King David in Psalm 22? Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt alone? In this stanza, it is clear that David felt very alone. You know, over the past decade or so, a lot of academic research has been done, both Christian and secular research alike, and they have all come to the same conclusion that the United States of America is facing a loneliness epidemic. You know, people have fewer friends than ever before. 
People are looking down at their phones more than ever before. People are attending church less frequently than ever before. People are lacking deep, close friendships more than ever before. The American people are lonely, is what the research has shown. At the Air Force Academy, I work with 18 to 23-year-olds, also known as Gen Z, right? And much research has shown that Gen Z is the loneliest generation in American history by far. It is heartbreaking to see some of the statistics. The average Gen Zer spends nine hours a day on their phone, and they spend considerably less time with their friends face to face. And you look at the mental health statistics, and you can see the fallout. You know, in the late 1970s, 52% of seniors in high school, 17, 18-year-olds, they got together with their friends almost every day. By 2017, only 28%, half. In 2003, we're now in the teens, or Gen Z is in the teens. And the drop was especially pronounced in 2010. Why 2010? I don't want to blame smartphones for everything, but, well, that one's pretty obvious. 2010 was when smartphones were introduced. But if we're being honest, this loneliness epidemic, it runs much deeper than Gen Z. We all experience deep, deep loneliness. Another study I found by the Survey Center on American Life, it found that in 1990, the average person said they had 13.2 close friends. Today, the average is 1.8. And that's across all demographics, all generations. And then get this, 15% of men said they have no close friends. Men are lonelier than ever before. And it isn't just Gen Z, it's every generation of men. Have you ever felt alone? I know you have, we all have felt alone that no one really gets you, that no one truly sees you? If so, know that you're feeling alone. You aren't alone in that feeling. In Psalm 22, David could resonate with us. He felt alone in this valley, and he's looking around, and he can't find his friends. He can't even find his God. God seems preoccupied with other more important things, and he doesn't understand it. And he doesn't understand why God, who promised to be near and close to the brokenhearted, would feel so far away. And so he naturally starts looking for answers. The first place he turns for answers is biblical history. He says in this stanza, our fathers put their trust in you, and you delivered them. In other words, I know you can do it. You delivered Abraham from the five kings. You delivered Moses and the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. You delivered Joshua from prison. You delivered Gideon from the Midianites. I've seen you do it, but why aren't you delivering me? You listened to them. You listened to their cries. Why aren't you listening to my cries? Like, did I do something wrong? Like, is there something wrong with me? Is that why you're not listening? 
Is that why you're not hearing my prayers? Is that why you're not looking in my direction? That must be it. And this is what David concludes. He says, I'm just a worm. I'm not like them. I'm a nobody. You don't care about me. You're going to let me suffer in this valley alone. You see, as David considered biblical history, his situation actually becomes more confusing. It becomes more difficult for him because David knew that God has always been true to his promise to be near, that he would never leave or forsake his people. Biblical history had proved this time and time again. David knew his Bible. But then where was God now? David's situation didn't make much sense. And so he starts asking why. The next thing David turns to is his upbringing for answers, for assurance in the valley that God is with him, that God loves him. He says, from day one, you have been my God. From my mother's womb, I have trusted you. In other words, I've never known a day when I didn't feel your love, where I didn't experience your face shining upon me. You've always been with me. You were with me when Samuel anointed my head with oil. You were with me when I slayed Goliath. You were with me when Jonathan made this covenant with me and forfeited his entire inheritance to a teenage boy. You were with me in all of those situations. But what happened? Where are you now? Why do you feel so far away from me now? You know, perhaps some of you can relate with David. He was raised in the church, if you will, right? Maybe you were raised in the Christian home and you've never known a day when you didn't experience God's love, where you didn't feel his presence and praise God for that. That's my prayer for my children every day, that they would never know a day when they didn't feel and experience God's love. But maybe somewhere around the road, maybe today, maybe this week, maybe in the in the near future, maybe you found yourself or will find yourself in the valley and you don't feel God's presence or you didn't feel God's presence in that stage or that season of your life. You didn't feel seen by him. You didn't feel known by him. You didn't feel loved and cared for by him. What do you do in those times? What do you do when God feels far away? What do you do when you find yourself in a spiritual rut? And you don't feel it anymore. What do you turn to when you lack assurance of salvation? Well, it's important for us to see what David doesn't turn to. To reassure him that God was present with him. First off, he doesn't turn to his feelings. He doesn't say, why have you forsaken me? Yet I will rely on positive thinking and I will strive to raise my self-esteem. He doesn't rely on his feelings towards God or towards his circumstance. You know, while honest self-reflection is really important in like increasing or improving our emotional intelligence as a biblical practice, our feelings cannot assure us that God is objectively present with us. Second, David doesn't turn to his past mountaintop experiences. This one's interesting. He doesn't look at all the things that he's done, even the things that he's done for God as assurance. 
He doesn't say, why have you forsaken me? Yet I will remember the time that I slayed Goliath. Wow, you were near me then. I did some great things for you then. In Psalm 22, David doesn't rely on how he feels about God or on what he's done in the past, even for God, to give him assurance that God is with him in the valley. And the same is to be true for us. Listen, if you ever find yourself in the valley and you're asking some of the questions that David is asking in Psalm 22, and you start to doubt God's faithfulness, maybe you start to doubt whether or not you're even a Christian, If you turn inward for assurance, you're going the wrong direction. David understood this. He understood this. And so he turns to something else, something far greater. When David asked that that heartbreaking question, why have you forsaken me? He then turns to this, yet you are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's where David turns. You see, he turns to the unchanging nature of God. God is holy. That's the sum of all of his attributes. God is enthroned. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is enthroned. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's all good. And then he says he's enthroned where? On the praises of Israel. God is worthy of worship. These truths about God's nature They're unchanging. That's where he turns. When you feel alone in the valley, your feelings and your past experiences, while important, they won't cut it. But God's unchanging nature? Now that, my friends, is a solid anchor. He says, yet you are holy. That's who you are. You are faithful and you are good. And since you are faithful and good and you cannot change and you have promised to be with me even in the valley, I know you're here. All right, let's move on. Stanza number two. If you turn back with me, verse 12 through 21. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all of my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. All right, so if the first stanza invites us into David's loneliness, the second stanza invites us into David's fear. In this stanza, David feels powerless. He feels helpless. 
His enemies are surrounding him on every side, and he doesn't feel like he can sufficiently defend himself. He describes his enemies as lions, bulls, dogs, and swords. Now, obviously, David is using metaphorical language to describe his predicament, right? There weren't actual lions, bulls, and dogs surrounding David, but he uses these poetic metaphors to make the psalm relatable to us. He paints us into the picture. I'm so glad that he does this. If David were to say, like, Saul's army just did a flanking maneuver to my left, and now he's got this army of a thousand men, and they all have broadswords, and there's 50 chariots, and they're shooting flaming arrows at me, we wouldn't necessarily connect with the psalm. It would be David's story, not our story. And this is what the psalms do. They paint us into the picture with rich imagery. The metaphorical language in Psalm 22, it allows us to enter into David's story. If we read it solely as like historical narrative, you're going to miss the thrust of this psalm. We were meant to feel his fear and then to consider our own unique threats, our own lions and bulls and dogs and swords. And so we are to paint ourselves into the picture. We are to paint our fears into the picture. And so what wild animals are you up against this morning? Maybe you're up against an ongoing sin struggle. And despite your best efforts and despite your desperate cries for help, the struggle continues. And it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Maybe the roaring lion in your life is your boss's like unrelenting demands on your time. He wants you to spend or she wants you to spend more hours at work and fewer hours at home and you're afraid of the consequences. Maybe the ravenous pack of dogs that surrounds you is a culture that is pressuring you, that surrounds you on every side, that's pressuring you to do ungodly things. A culture that is mocking your faith. And as a result, you feel trapped. You feel alone, you feel surrounded, you feel helpless, you feel powerless to defend yourself against our ravenous culture. Listen, when you're up against bulls and lions and dogs, what is it that you most deeply need? Do you just need more grit? Do you just need better coping mechanisms? Do you just need to like read more Tim Keller and Sinclair Ferguson? Do you just need to lead more Bible studies? What's gonna get you through the valley when you were deeply afraid? In Psalm 22, David remembered what he needed to overcome his fear. In verse 19, he cries out, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. Here it is. O you, my help. Come quickly to my aid. You see, David understood that he couldn't get himself out of the valley by his own power and strength and grit. He needed the power of God to get him through it. And the same is true for us. In the midst of David's fear, he faithfully cries out to his faithful God to come and help him. 
He knows where his help comes from. And so he cries out to the only one who actually has the power to reverse his situation. And I love this. I love Hebrew poetry um, because it does this a lot. And maybe you missed it. But in verses 12 through 16, David is hopeless and he orders his enemies this way. Bulls, then lions, then dogs, then humans with swords. But then it's like David remembers that God is faithful, that he is near, that he is his help in times of trouble. And then hopeful David in verses 20 to 21 reverses the order and he says, deliver me from the soul of the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. You see, David realized that only God can reverse the order, that only God could defeat these enemies and bring true, lasting deliverance. And he's inviting us in this psalm to share in this realization. Listen, at times in the Christian life, you may feel powerless. You may feel as if nothing can reverse the order. But if you're a Christian, hear me, you already have God's strength through the indwelling of his powerful spirit. If you are a Christian, you already have the Holy Spirit and you can't get more of what you already fully have. You know, when you enter into a different stage of Christian maturity, that isn't the result of having more Holy Spirit. It's rather the result of relying more on what you already have. In Psalm 22, David learned to rely more on God's strength than his own strength. He's like Paul. When Paul writes, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The power of Christ may rest upon me. Have you ever wondered why or how, like older wiser, more mature, seasoned Christians can, can weather like the most impossible hardships? I'll tell you, they rely less on themselves and more on God. Stanza number three. Now throughout this psalm, David was lonely and so he pressed into God's presence. He was afraid and so he presses into God's power. But now in the third stanza, David presses into a truth that is so comforting. It is so comforting that it transforms this lament psalm into a praise psalm. And so if you would read with me Psalm 22, verses 22 through 31. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. 
and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Wow. We could spend the next few months on this passage. There's so much here. But I'm going to focus instead on verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, but he, and he has not hidden his face from him. A few years ago, I was at a, a war exercise in the middle of nowhere, Podunk, Wisconsin. Sorry if you're from Wisconsin. And of course, we had like no cell reception at all, at least not good enough to do like FaceTime and Zoom calls. And so one night I'm talking to Jen. I got enough bars to at least make a phone call. I, I call my wife and my four kids and, um, and my girls, my two older girls, they kept asking me like, Dad, can we FaceTime with you? we please FaceTime? Like, we want to see your face. Like, please, Dad, let us see your face. And I wanted to FaceTime with them. Believe you me, I wanted to see their face. I wanted them to see mine, but I couldn't. And so I could just tell them, like, they would have to wait until I came home, and then they could see my face. And, you know, they were thankful for my voice, but they were desperate for my face. You know, there is incredible power in the human face both healing power and hurting power, all in the face. And I think maybe that's why people keep their faces in their phones, because they're afraid to look up and see a disappointed face looking back at them, their own included. And I recently watched a YouTube video of a still face experiment. Have you guys ever heard of these before? If you haven't, YouTube still face experiment. It's fascinating. So in this experiment, in the video, uh, like a bunch of fathers are taken with their young infant children. And then, and then just the father and the child, like just the two of them are put into an isolated room. And the dad, the dads are told to like play with their kid. The child is probably nine to 12 months old to play with their kid, to smile, to laugh, to engage with them with their face. And then at a certain point in their little head earpiece, someone would tell them to, to shift and to turn their emotions completely off, to look at their child completely stone-faced and still. And we're going to see what happens. And you can imagine what happened, right? Each session is heartbreaking because without their father's approving, smiling face, all of the babies within minutes immediately started to cry. It was so confusing. It was so heartbreaking for them to not have their father's face. And now if there's that much power in a human face, imagine how much more power there must be in God's face. That's why verse 24 is so crucial to understanding Psalm 22 and so crucial to our lives, especially when we find ourselves in the valley. For God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. Y'all are likely very familiar with Aaron's great blessing in Numbers 6. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. You see, when God turns his face towards his people, there's more going on than simply turning and looking in your direction. It describes the expression on his face, the approving, gracious, loving expression on his face when he looks in your direction. And so let me ask you this, and this may be a difficult question for some. As God thinks of you right now, what do you think is the expression on his face? Is he disappointed in you? Is he ashamed of you? Is he angry at you? Is he embarrassed of you? Is he disgusted with you? Does his face communicate, get your act together? Or maybe when you think of God, it's like the still face experiment and all you see is like complete indifference. And this like indifference, this emotionless on God's face, it like breaks your heart. And you start to think, well, why would he smile at me? You're nothing special. You're just one person out of billions that he's created. And then for some of you, maybe when you imagine God's face, you only see the back of his head because he's thrown up his hands and he's walking away. He's like, you had your chances and you failed every time and now you're on your own. Good luck, my friend. Listen, please listen to this, if anything else, if not anything else. If you imagine God as anything but pleased when he looked at you because of what Christ has done for you, you're not looking at God's face. No, you're most likely looking into the ugly face of your sin and shame, which was already nailed to the cross with Christ. My friends, this is where comfort in the valley is found. You see, due to our sin, we deserve God's displeasure. We deserve to see a disappointed face looking in our direction. We deserve to see an indifferent, still, emotionless face. We deserve to see the back of God's head as he's walking away from us. But instead, we get his smile. David gets his smile. How could that be? Well, David tells us how in Psalm 22. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David was able to describe a real-life experience that he was really facing, but using metaphorical language to describe it that went far beyond his actual experience, that went a thousand years beyond his experience. You see, while David described in Psalm 22 while he described his reality metaphorically, Jesus experienced Psalm 22. He experienced the metaphors in his reality. Christ's blood was actually poured out like water. His bones were actually pulled out of joint. His hands and feet were actually pierced. His tongue actually stuck to the top of his jaw. His enemies actually gloated and mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Ha ha. 
His garments were actually divided and his body was actually laid in the dust of death. No metaphors. My friends, Jesus actually paid your debt so that you could actually gain assurance that God's presence will never leave. Jesus actually suffered under God's wrath so that you could actually experience and live under God's grace. And when Jesus publicly cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He actually experienced God's full displeasure on sin so that you could actually see God's loving, smiling, approving face every second of every day in this life and the next, even in the valley. And if you are still uncertain about whether or not God's smiling face is truly permanent, Look no further than the last verse in this great psalm. Psalm 22, verse 31. And I want you to let this truth sink deep into your bones. I want you all to like swim in these waters, especially when you find yourself in the valley. Verse 31. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. He did it. In other words, it's finished. Your guilt is finished. Your shame is finished. Your eternal longing for God's face is finished. Your loneliness is finished. Your restlessness is finished. Your hopelessness is finished. Your weak assurance of salvation is finished. Your aimless striving to prove to God that you're worth loving is finished. Your alienation from God is finished. Every aspect of your full salvation is finished because he has done it for you. And therefore, you can be certain that God's present, powerful, smiling face will permanently shine upon you, even in the deep, dark valley. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are with us, that you are for us, and that you love us so much more than we could even begin to imagine. That you give us the comfort of your presence in both our high moments and the low, that you give us the power of your spirit, that we would rely more upon that power and less on our own strength and our own grit, that like Paul, we would pray and live into the truth that when we are weak, we are strong because Christ's strength shines through us. And Lord, we pray that we would be comforted by the truth that Jesus has done what we could not do for ourselves, that our wandering and our aimless striving our guilt and our shame is finished, that it was nailed to the cross with Christ. We thank you. We give you this morning and every morning. It's through Christ's name, amen.